0: This is an ABC podcast. Good
1: plan. Good Who thought of this
0: one? You're listening to the
1: Out of St.
2: podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In for the side. Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers.
3: And the
4: groundbreakers, history makers...
5: Oh, hello, my lovelies. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am very pleased to be back in the chair, though... If you ask me the question, do I like pina coladas? The answer is yes. (laughs) I am your host, Emma Race, and I am joined in the studio by my football-loving Sanctum sisters. Thankfully, I'm going to let them introduce themselves.
6: Hello, it's Lucy Race here. Hey there,
5: Nicole Hayes. Hi, it's
7: Kate Seal.
8: Ciao, ciao, Bella. (laughs) Buongiorno. And it's Catherine Murphy. I'm finally, finally sitting here to listen in to your intro. In the actual studio as opposed to on the couch at home.
5: Does it feel very IRL for you?
8: It feels very little bit intimidating to finally be in here in a good way in a good way.
5: ABC sports reporter Catherine Murphy has finally joined us in the studio. We pass each other in the halls all the time and stop and have really interesting conversations about sport and the industry and what it's like being a woman walking around the halls of sports in Australia. And we look forward to having your input on the podcast today. So thank you very much for coming in.
8: Thank you for having me. I usually see you girls sitting in the cafe drinking coffee, not mean girls, like keeping me out of the loop. But <laughs> but it's it good to, to be... To <laughs> good to be on the end on the end <laughs>
5: you're in well you're in today we can't wait to hear more about your story and what brought you to Australia but also how much you love AFL and how much you love reporting on it there is lots of things for us to talk about today but I think that it would be appropriate for us to start off by talking about the passing of Danny Frawley and we do recognize that this may be a really hard conversation for people to listen to so we do want to give you the heads up on that we in this studio didn't have a lot to do with Danny Frawley I used to see him at work Work from time to time, but our beautiful producer, friend and co-host of the podcast, Tess Armstrong, has a family connection to the Frawley family and she has been filling us in a little bit with a bit of colour about the Frawley family and we've asked her today to remember the Frawley family and Danny um, in her own personal way. Tess, how are you going? Thanks, Em.
3: I'm all right. I am just making sure that I'm there for my mum and dad who have been long-time friends with Danny, and the whole Frawley family have been friends of my family for my whole life. They are a really amazing family, very tight-knit, very funny. They are surrounded by people who love them. And it will be hard to hear so much discussion about their person in the media. And um, so it's just been a hard week. Uh, When I found out on Monday, I was just worried about Dad and Mum and how they would take it and everything like that. But also it was kind of odd, I suppose, working in the news. You hear these things all the time, but you don't often know the person. And so it was quite confronting to know the person involved but to hear all the stories and I you know drive home listening to talk back radio and people telling their stories about Danny and I was really impressed with the TV coverage and the radio coverage on the night that so many people who rocked up to work to do their normal programs and were really close friends with Danny were able to do their program and speak with such compassion about someone that they really loved and I would hope that people keep that in mind when they're watching football coverage generally in the next couple of weekends. It's really going to heat up. Everyone's going to be talking about the finals and that's all really good. But a lot of those people involved in those programs are mourning and and grieving and it's going to be really challenging for them to do their jobs for everybody's enjoyment um, and also be going through this thing at the same time. One of the things that I've noticed as well listening to Talkback Callers is that um, it doesn't really matter how you knew Danny, if you even knew him in real life or if you just knew him from the tally or the radio or you're a St. Kilda fan, everybody's stories about him are the same. You know, they all say, oh, he's such a funny person and he was so genuine and he filled everybody's cup so he um, gave to everyone around him in such a generous way and that's a really important legacy and another legacy is how he had normalised speaking about mental health for a generation of men and a particular type of man from the country who may not have done that before. And it's been something quite special to see people join in on that conversation with him. And yeah, that will be a lasting legacy. I hope that legacy brings some comfort to his family in a really horrible time. Um, And just before I go back to you. Obviously, these conversations in the media this week are quite confronting for lots of people. So there's just a couple of important numbers that people need to keep in mind if they need support or they just need someone to talk to because everybody does from time to time. Beyond Blue, the number is 1300 224 636 and Lifeline is 13 11 14.
5: Thank you so much, Tess. That was a really hard thing for you to have to talk about, but we really appreciate it because, you know, there's what you see from the footy persona but to hear the impact that he's had on your family is um, brings it all really close to home and we all have people like that in our lives. So we feel your pain and we empathise with the pain of your family and we send huge condolences to everyone who's hurting about this. The thing that I think has come back to me is how the community of football is really on show right now and we and this is why we love being a part of it. The community is massive and it's powerful and we're a part of it and you guys are all a part of it and we all hurt together and we celebrate together and then we get back to feuding on the weekend when our teams play. I
6: echo that completely Em and uh, the, the other evening I tuned into SEN and listened to your husband on air and I was so struck by the role that talkback radio can play in times when people are really struggling and I've seen it before on SEN um, when Gerald Lyle passed away but the fact that it's almost becoming a space where people can call in and speak and share some of their feelings I think is actually really really positive and really powerful and what we're seeing is people who wouldn't ordinarily open up about their feelings are opening up and I think that's a good thing
5: and Danny Frawley's made already such a huge impact you know weeks ago and months ago about talking about his mental health issues I know with Andy and I've been receiving messages from people who have been telling us, friends of ours, who are saying that Danny Frawley talking about men's health has impacted the way that they've lived their life and the way that they've changed habits in their life. So that's already a legacy that he's left. But we're seeing that in much greater and more publicly at the moment, aren't we, Nick?
1: Yeah. Adam Treloar on AFL 360 last night was talking about in relation to his own public discussion of mental health and how he'd heard Danny speak about it on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and just have a listen to what Adam had to say
2: yeah when I found out the news it was just I just couldn't believe it I I've, n- I've never met I never met the guy I can tell how much of an impact he had on so many people by the stories that I've heard in the last 24 hours I, I listened so I listened to that sack podcast and I actually listened to Danny Frawley he's his one I think two weeks ago yeah. and I wish because I remember when I listened to it and I really didn't know how bad his mental side was, I guess, and how much he struggled, and that's just because I didn't know the guy, and when I was, you know, listening and listening to him talk, in that moment I just wanted to, I wanted to meet him, I wanted to ring him, I wanted to meet him, I wanted to chat to him, and I just wish, I was so shy I obviously wouldn't, I was just too shy, so I wish, I wish I had enough balls, I suppose, to have rang him and had a chat with him and um, obviously you, you can never foresee what's going to happen and obviously we didn't a- anticipate this to happen. But, yeah, my uh, my heart goes out to him because I know he, he had his struggles. He spoke about his struggles and um, I well and truly have my struggles. And like I said, when I heard about this, it's something that I can relate to. And, yeah, just, again, my heart just goes out to him.
5: That's really generous of Adam Trelaw to share that. I've also really enjoyed seeing um, there's some beautiful footage of Danny Frawley's Halebury girls team that he coached, there's some beautiful vision of them all celebrating when they won the grand final last year and I think that will just warm the cockles of your heart if you get to see it. (laughs) Um, there has been some footy played. Finals are heating up. And I think we say this every year, the prelims are often better than the grand final and they are going to be bang on amazing. I want to hear your highlights, but firstly, Katie, you've been in Europe for what feels like months on end. <laughs> how much across the footy it are does. you? Oh,
7: I thought you were going to ask me how much Prosecco did you drink? The, <laughs> a- the answer was a lot. I didn't see any of the finals live because I was in Italy and I was working, but I have seen bits and pieces of the finals since I, I came back. One of the things I. I do love about travelling and that I always like to do wherever I go is to watch some local television because I think it gives you a bit of an insight into what kinds of things people are into and what's going on in that country or that culture and when we were in Florence we stumbled upon some medieval games on television which I was, I must admit I was just enthralled by, we couldn't was look that away Was <laughs> that
1: that's where it went. Of my,
7: what, one of my friends described it as a bit like an Italy's version of it's a knockout, if you remember that. <laughs> if, you, if you're too young, you'll have to Google what that is. Yeah, there was many teams in brightly coloured medieval garb competing in That's rowing and way. jousting and other competitions. The rules were all completely unclear to me. It was all happening in Italian, but it was fascinating to watch. And I've since discovered that part of what we were watching was something called the Saracen Joust, which is a recreation of a tournament from medieval times. I didn't understand much of what was happening. Other other than to say that what happens in this jousting competition, it's not two people on horseback jousting with each other. It's kind of a person on uh, horseback jousting with a a dummy, essentially a target that they have to hit. It's often unclear until the very final moment who's going to win because the judges can disqualify a rider if they deviate off their line. And it seemed to me that they were using video replays to decide this. So it was a bit like ARC, which (laughs) I I heard you talk about last (laughs) week, the AFL uh, review system. But here's a clip from a previous joust. When you'll hear a little bit about how the action unfolds, when everyone waits for the video replay and the decision as to who's won.
1: quartiere Porta Santo
5: did medieval Patrick Dangerfield just get one right through the middle? Just through the, through the
7: um, big sticks. So what I discovered was that a team called Porto Santo Spirito had won. They're a team that wears gold and blue. So I think that could be an oh. omen for the West Coast Eagles. There you go. Me. All oh. of that
1: research. Wow. <laughs>
5: That's a real There's international. There's always a way to tie everything yeah. back to the footy, right? International flavour. Did you have any highlights closer to home, Luke? I did. I did. And
6: my first little highlight I just have to say is, did you know that they actually... Uncage the Brisbane Lions before they run onto the field. I'm presuming <laughs> this is what they do. You know, they're hashtag uncaged. I was watching them run out, and it's like they open a cyclone wire <gasps> oh. gate. And I really, like gladiator <laughs> <scratching laughs> cosplay. Thinking, what are they doing? And then it clicked. Un-caged. They're uncaged. Oh my god. <laughs> That oh, was gee. good. Wow. That might be easier yeah, as... if you put them in an actual cage first. <laughs> that could be quite fun. My real highlight is actually from GWS. So I'm going to be um, going with the orange people and saying
7: that. Why are you laughing at orange people? <laughs> she thought you were talking about Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did I.
5: <laughs> so I. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. No, I loved it though. I
7: like to find
6: new and interesting ways of describing people. Oh, the and and people. three giants kicked three goals which is not something that you often see.
5: Three giants kicking three goals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still in medieval times. Three orange giants <laughs> kicking three goals. Okay,
6: so Toby Green, Jeremy Finlayson. Green and orange? And Mm. Josh Kelly. They did really well.
5: Toby Green is very problematic. He is problematic. (laughs) And I imagine
6: that we will. Let's park Toby Green on one side and we'll return to him later. We're talking highlights.
5: We do need to. Nicole, highlights from you. You're an uncaged lion. (laughs) I'm Going back to the uncaged lions. Well, of all the games, some of
1: them I think were fairly lopsided for the most part. And the one that really stood out, at least for the first half, was the Brisbane-Richmond game up at the Gabattoir, as they call it. I was really impressed with Luke Hodges' first half. I just I know that everyone expects great things from him, but he's at the end of his career, near the end of his career. We don't know for sure. But he had something like 27 disposals, and most of them were in the first half. This is an old man. Like, let's be honest here. <laughs> but also, when do you get tired of winning stuff, like in finals? I think that the idea that he keeps showing up, that he keeps being hungry, that's such an impressive thing. He really was directing traffic down there and really kept the helped to keep Brisbane in touch. And if they'd been kicking straighter, I think that second half will look really different.
5: You don't call him Mr.
1: September for nothing.
5: No. Like Mr. September. Yeah. He kicks in. It's like he's another, it's it's like he's Clark Kent and it turns into September (laughs) and all of a sudden he just takes off the normal Luke Hodge and he turns into what is like a finals um, robot. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, But he's he's like like Andy
8: Murray because he's retired. We've had the retirement package. Yes. He's come back again. What's the second retirement package look like? You know the big VT they put in the big screen. Yeah. It's like at the Australian Open when Andy Murray openly said in an on-court interview, "Actually, I might not retire," but unfortunately, the broadcaster already <laughs> were like, "Oh, we just press play, and here are all the tributes." And now he's back. He's yeah, you, playing singles you again. You get two guys, I don't think. It is a little awkward.
5: It is I mean, a we all awkward. whipped around and got him a farewell present, <laughs> yeah. and then he turned up in Start other in colours the, the card next week. Card. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Catherine Murphy, what was your highlight from the round?
8: My highlight has got to be Dustin Martin. Now, not just his six goals. I have worked out mathematically and statistically that there is a direct correlation between how well the Tigers are playing and how many modelling shots Dustin Martin puts (laughs) on his Instagram account. I'm not saying that's something I personally enjoy, but I think for the good of the community... And for people being upbeat in September, that's the thing. Now, I, I'm i not good on the figures, but there's a direct correlation. I'm sure Tessa Armstrong is. <laughs>
5: uh, I think we'll get champion data onto it. it I think should, we should. It should be I don't quantified. know why
8: it hasn't been quantified yet. <laughs>
5: he was amazing. And I have to say, my highlight is West Coast Eagles because I feel like, and I'm just going to say it. Look, I'm just going to put it out there. We live in Victoria. We are Victorian-centric. The whole competition is. But I see you, West Coast. You have been good all year. We Never know exactly what you're going to bring. We talk about all this, you know, playing away from home. Nothing troubles you, really. Nothing troubles the West Coast Eagles, and they are man mountains. They are the tallest, most imposing giants. people. They are giants yeah. with it being eagles, <laughs> and Not they're orange. giants yeah. at, in the forward line. Bad they're giants. They are <laughs> the big birds that fly, yeah. and they're amazing. But there was one little moment from Richmond's game where I was like Daniel Rioli. He somehow swooped through, through this, did this little clearance just at the front of the 50, at the front of the square. And I watched it in real time. I watched it slowed down and I st- it was David Copperfield kind of yeah. stuff. Like, I don't know how he it did that. Right. Just back on Dusty for a second. My mum is a huge
7: Richmond fan. I'm sure many of our listeners will have seen this because it does do the rounds quite regularly. It's written apparently by someone called Paul Marr. And my mum sends this to me on a regular basis. It's a little poem that says, Our Dusty, who plays at Richmond, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> thy Brownlow come, thy magic done, interstate as it is at the G. Give us this match, our 30-plus possessions, and forgive us our close losses, as we don't argue those who tackle against us, and lead us not into another finals loss, but deliver us to a prelim. For ours is the raw, the yellow, and the black, forever and ever.
8: Sharon. <laughs> wow. But does she love the modelling shop? Oh, she loves it all. Does she have Instagram? <laughs>
7: She doesn't, but um, if she did, I think she'd be focused
8: on Dusty. She'd be time. liking she loves him. <laughs> he has a very broad fan base. Dusty it does.
5: Before we get into rolling up our sleeves and melling, let's have a chat to Catherine while you're here, Catherine, because we know you have to go and do the the work that a sports journalist at the ABC does. We have been so curious about you and your gorgeous accent and the fact that you are not from around these parts. <laughs> what brought you to Australia? And what is your love of sport? How deep does that run?
8: It's Absolute brainwashing from my dad. It's not to scare parents, but there's no doubt that what you subject your children to is what they will end up doing. Like I don't remember at what point I decided I needed to be a sports journalist. I think it was pretty early days in university. I started a news journalism degree and I pretty much sat in the room and thought, I don't want to be a news journalist. And I was playing a lot of sport at the time and straight away knew that there was two options, sports journalism or the lofty ambition that never works out for any of us, travel journalism, where you just lie on beaches all the time and file reports. So
7: That's what Emma does. That's Emma's Instagram feed. (laughs)
8: Literally what Emma was doing last week. I don't get paid
1: for
5: it, though.
7: I know,
8: well, that didn't work out for me either. It's
1: the unicorn of media, of sports journalism. (laughs) I
8: don't think it really even exists anymore. (laughs) I don't think you can pay the bills with it. I ended up going into sport and I worked with RTE, which is Radio Telefiche Air, and that means radio television in Ireland. So the national broadcaster, the same as the ABC, except back then it was really a closed shop in Ireland. We had all the major sports rights for every code, completely closed shop. And I was lucky enough to kind of start my career there. So I never had to do that local, regional, hard yards. Started with them and I was with them pretty much. I grew up there. I just felt like I needed to do something different. And if I moved TV channels back home, I was moving somewhere that didn't have any sports rights. So it didn't make any sense whatsoever. So the international rules was in Ireland, I think around 2004 four maybe and I managed to get a job for a few months at Fox Footy Channel in Melbourne and basically made the move and I haven't gone home yet would be the best way to describe it. So Catherine, are there any sports that you don't like? I don't think there are because I love sports that some people think are just crazy. Like I love snooker. I grew up watching (laughs) snooker and I loved it it with my dad. It absolutely is a sport and (laughs) My favorite interview of all time is a man called Ronnie O'Sullivan, very famous snooker player. He I'll always remember him because he got me a promotion at work. Someone called in sick and I got the chance to interview him. And he's a superstar back home. And he opened up on anything. So it got to the point where I thought, this guy will literally tell me anything. I'm just gonna keep going. <laughs> And it went to places where afterwards the producer was equal parts kind of surprised, but a bit angry because they were like, what time of night do you think this is going to be broadcast? Half of that just can't go anywhere. But I hope you had fun. And I was like, that was amazing. And... I want to go to the darts. That's on my bucket list because <laughs> I want to be that one in the crowd dancing, drinking beer, spilling beer on people as well at the darts. I haven't been yet. Have
1: you been to jousting?
8: <laughs> no, but that sounds good apart from they use dummies. I know. Bring back the bit. <laughs> yes. Like.
2: What is that?
8: Like, do it or don't do it. Like, who's commit. cheering? Dummy <laughs> to the death, Catherine <laughs> no, I mean, to the death. But like, if you're to good, good yeah, if you you'd gotta... have armour on, wouldn't you?
5: I've seen that Heath Ledger film. If you're going to, if you're going to joust,
7: joust just do joust it. properly. Do joust it or properly. don't do it, Catherine. I'm interested. I mean, obviously, the sixty-four million dollar question for anybody who moves to Melbourne is, or to to Australia, is whether you've picked an AFL team. If so, who and and what was the rationale?
8: When I moved here. I've had a few influences. So I lived in Sydney for a time. I actually went to university, did a semester in Sydney in 2001. And Tig Kennelly was at the Swans and I did part of my thesis, I think, on Tig. So he ordered me to support the Swans <laughs> and... I stuck with that and I did some work with the Swans through the AFL and they're such a good team, such a good culture. But I've lived 10 out of my 12 years in Melbourne, so I was very clearly told I had to pick a team here, which I agreed with. And it was presented not as an option at the time of who that team would be. It was Richmond, but I'm very glad that I agreed to that. So I thought you were maybe going they're going my team with, now. I thought
7: you were going to maybe go with Carlton with the Satanta helping connection.
8: Well, I covered his career a lot over the years. And this is one of, he taught me one of the very important things I've come to learn in sports journalism. He never wanted to do my interviews. I was under real pressure because I still kind of worked with the TV channel back home. He was a super, star back home wouldn't do my interviews and I assumed that maybe he didn't like media or he was standoffish Sure, and it took years until finally we did an interview and I said to him something like don't worry this won't go for long and it's very edited and I try and reassure people if they look a bit hesitant or nervous and I realised that he's just incredibly shy and I think footballers can walk around with a bravado because they have to look strong. But there are a lot of shy people out there who play football and they're the best interviews because I have a theory on shy, nervous people. They're generally more intelligent because they see the bigger picture, they're deeper thinkers, they're more inclined to have nerves. I try now to never assume that someone is standoffish. It could just be a fear of interviews. or But yeah, he was a really good guy Apart from that time, he kicked someone from, yeah, that was an interesting, it was a kick up the backside. I'm trying to find a nice way to put it. But apparently, (laughs) everyone sided with him. Let's not go down that path. But everyone said he did the right thing. That's all I have to say.
5: Catherine, you've alluded to the relationship between Australia and Ireland in that we have had a relationship with the international rules. There is players that move in both directions to play each other's codes. It's very rare because this is such a parochial and Indigenous game to this little tiny country. My question to you is when, you, when you're when you here and you see someone of the calibre of Cora Staunton come out here to play AFLW, we all grow to love her but you would clearly have a relationship in your mind of what she stands for. Can you kind of express and explain what that is for us?
8: Well, I do have a relationship and... A memory of Cora Staunton from home. We played against each other in schools once. Oh. And she turned up. And if Cora Staunton turns up on the opposition team, you basically get together in a huddle and decide, let's just not lose by that much. Because (laughs) she was a freak. This would be when she was around 16. She was... a quite famous and we didn't realise she was at this school we were playing it wasn't a Mayo team because we weren't in that competition so I can't remember because I'm trying to block out the day (laughs) this happened that she turned up to summarise the match she scored about Two goals and 28 points and I scored about, oh yes, nothing (laughs) in the forward line. And I almost got frostbite because obviously I'm not getting, I'm a corner forward, I'm not getting any of the ball because she's just like training practice down the (laughs) other end. And it was like watching, you had to admire her, but it was Not our best day out. So she's a freak. But I also played with in my, I'm from a place called Milltown in County Cavan. So on the border with, well, Brexit, actually, (laughs) like 10 minutes from Brexit. And my teammate, Laura Duray lives here now. And she was actually the first Irish girl to play AFLW for Melbourne. And people would say to me, how did Laura transition to the game and i would say laura's been afl tackling since she was 11 like we would go to training and gaelic football for women is non-contact and i would grab the same bib or try and be on the same team just for my own safety (laughs) so that was the big one when i saw like she came into abc and i thought this is so weird we're from this tiny village like with a shop A pub and a church. I'm not even from the village. I'm from the middle of nowhere. I'm outside the village. And that she was playing AFLW. And I'm just talking about it, but let's not go down my failed career. So I was so proud of her. And she was amazing and she'll always be the first but Cora Staunton is a freak.
7: We hear a lot and have talked a lot in this country about the impact of Jim Steins in raising the profile of AFL in Ireland do you have a sense about the impact that AFL Women's is having on awareness and understanding of our sport because I think there's now more than a dozen Irish women I think who are who assigned are to AFL W lists Well What's I've heard impact?
8: from Kevin Sheehan at the AFL on Friday night and I've just said that in a very Irish way, Sheehan, because we're talking about Irish people, Sheehan. There's going to be a total of almost 30 Irish players, AFL and AFLW, next year. So it's a really big story for football and women's sport generally, because Gaelic football is an amateur sport back home. So not even the men get paid. So obviously the women don't either. So they're choosing to come over here and be professional sports people and that is massive and I think AFLW is having a big effect on other sports because I look at rugby which I love and those girls are not getting paid they're playing super rugby and they are not getting paid because of that the level is very low I don't generally cover it say at work because it's at a level where it's not even competitive. So when the Melbourne Rebels play Queensland it's like cricket score. It's just not relevant. I think AFLW is putting pressure on other sports to look after women and it's great to see them doing that and it's great that Irish women now have a chance to actually put some money in their bank account.
1: Is there much resentment though? Like with any pushback in Ireland that you're losing so much talent is it having a direct impact even on for the men as well in terms of pushing the desire for a professional code?
8: There used to be a lot of pushback on it, and I even found there was a bit of tension. Like at one point, I went back home and I'm working out here and I'm almost promoting AFL and I'm friends with all the guys who come over here to play and that notion that I'm almost, like, promoting a foreign sport that's taking our people. But I've always been very quick to point out that some of the best Irish rugby players who will go to the World Cup are former Gaelic footballers who wanted a job in sport. And it was very convenient back then for the GA to point to AFL as the problem, whereas... There were other codes right in their doorstep who were taking talent away. I think there's a much more measured approach now, a much greater appreciation of people who do make the transition. And I think we're very proud of them as a nation rather than being competitive.
6: Catherine, I have heard tell of your sporting career and that you were reasonably assertive on the field, assertive, competitive, feisty. And I'm wondering whether you bring, have to bring some of those characteristics to your job as a sports journalist, especially being a woman.
8: How does that go? I think you might have heard that during the Ben Stratton case at the AFL Tribunal, and I love covering the tribunal, and I unfortunately missed Toby Greens this week. But I do a lot of tribunal and I did have to admit, while well, I was forced into admitting on Offsiders by Paul Kennedy that I was I liked nipping. I just liked inflicting that sort of irritating injury because I was little and lacking in talent and I think I had to I was always tried to be the fittest but I wasn't the most talented hence Cora Staunton story (laughs) I had tactics to make up for it I definitely think as a woman in sports journalism you're on the road and you're attending press conferences and you have to be strong you just need to be hold your ground is how I would because for example I was at a press conference recently with Gillian McLaughlin, I think there was six, five or six female journalists and one man, and it was really nice. I think women, we have a different way of doing it. We ask the hard questions, but perhaps we give him a second when he's finished talking. We don't shout over each other. There's no need. We're all going to get a go at that press conference. It was really lovely lots of hard questions like Nat from Fox Sports got some great stuff out of that and then you go into an environment where it's extremely competitive at the AFL Tribunal I don't feel competitive because I'm like we're all gonna I don't need to shout over people I'm a polite person I like to keep it classy not everyone (laughs) does that's all I'm saying (laughs) So you just have to hold we your just, ground. We just got
5: the name of the t- the title of the podcast today. Yeah. We like to keep it classy. Yeah, oh. keep it
8: classy. Isn't that that's surely a quote from some Will Ferrell? Maybe. Yeah, keep it classy. Yeah, not San everyone. Diego? Yeah, he said something else about San Diego. Which, by the way, if that was put in my order queue. I'd say it as well, but uh, definitely. But yeah, I think you do have to hold your ground and pretty much can't have the job if you can't do that, I think.
5: Before, we are going to let you get out of here and get back to your actual job. But, but before I do, I had a query. We've got such a strong AFLW community and it has, I mean, it's been only four years of AFLW but the women's footy community is pretty massive and it's got a really loud beating heart. Is it the same with the um, community around Gaelic football, which is semi-professional?
8: Well, yes. So we all play Gaelic football. I suppose the difference is I grew up playing it. I did Gaelic football coach come to my school I played at lunchtime, I played after school I was on a team from this high I'm still that, only that high by the way Um, So it was all through the years And I went to Dublin City University And we had a uni team So you had certain privileges If you represented the university Like you didn't have to go to lectures So (laughs) I found that really handy My teammates from then They're some of the best days you will ever Have is with your teammates. And I think you always miss that. Like often when I'm at an AFL training waiting for interviews and I smell grass, like I just wish I could play again. And because really, when you become an adult and you're just like going for a run after work, you've got no sports goals in life, it's all a bit not fulfilling. Whereas that feeling of just my one time I've played in Australia was. At a charity kind of sevens thing and I hadn't played for years and I thought I was fit and I'd forgotten that kind of explosive fitness that you need and we didn't have enough interchanges or you had to put your hand up if you wanted to be interchanged and so I was putting my hand up and they just passed the ball to me and I (laughs) end up like being really sick on the sideline. I'm not going to go into detail, but quite sick because I drank too much Powerade as well. Because <laughs> it was 28 degrees, like I'd never played in that. And I look up and Satanto Halpine was there watching this, Yes, yeah, spate of my, it wasn't really my lunch. I don't think I'd had lunch, but whatever it was, revisiting me. <laughs> During the game So I miss that I even miss that I loved that so, yeah. Keeping it classy
5: We're going <laughs> to yeah. have to get you along for a kick and coffee Catherine Murphy, mm. thank you Thank you so in. much
8: for having me You girls are amazing I feel very lucky, it's an honour to come on your podcast
5: Okay, let's roll up our sleeves and Malay ladies, we mentioned Toby Green at the start of the show. It's been, he's a contentious character, his <laughs> young Toby Green, but I did notice last week, Lucy, you suggested that there was a situation with a, the Bonton Alarix, broken one. Mm. Is that how you say it, it like Larynx. Larynx? It sounds like
6: Laricks. It sounds like a Doctor Seuss Do you know what it character. Was? It was cricoid cartilage to wow. be specific.
5: Doctor Race in the house. It hurts yeah. even thinking about it. Mm. But then he got pretty physical. Toby Green on the weekend. Nicole Hayes, you've been watching this. Look, it wasn't
1: just Toby Green. I think the reporting, the focus on him, which is definitely you know he he's a challenging character as you say, and he has got form in terms of really pushing the boundaries and I would say at times breaching the rules. But I think the biggest problem is a confused message that the AFL sending around the protection of the head. It's supposed to be a sacrosanct space, and yet the Toby Green on the Bontempi incident, the danger of that is really obvious. But what was also not really discussed in a lot of detail is the dangerous tackle that Bontempi had just inflicted on Deledio right before that, and there wasn't really a lot of conversation about that. Yes, it gave away a free penalty. But those sling tackles or any version of the sling tackle where the players' arms are pinned effectively and they're going headfirst into the ground are really something that the AFL are different times have been really um, hard on. The other incident with Nick Natanui, a lot of attention again was around the hair pulling. But his reaction against Zach Merritt to throw him into the boundary like that, each of them got a $1,000 fine, as though they're somehow equal in terms of the danger of them. I understand hair pulling is not a good look, but the danger of someone being thrown into a boundary fence... Potentially mm. at first, given the all the conversations we've had around concussion and around CTN, all those mm. long-term impacts, I'm just not sure what the AFL is trying to say with all of this. It
6: is confusing, and I think when you look at all of the decisions as a whole and you think that Ben Stratton was given two weeks Mm. for stepping on someone's foot and for pinching. Ostensibly that was because they felt it wasn't a good look for the game Mm. and I would say hair pulling's also not a good look for the game and and neither is what happened to Bontempelli. And And then you compare it to I think in the NRL last night they've just handed down an eight-week ban for Hudson Young who for a very similar action on on another player and it's I think very confusing for the footy-watching pubs. Public and for players and officials, I would imagine to to know what is actually. Mm. On and what is not on.
1: I just think the AFL seems to be prioritising the look of the game and the appearance and also having key players on the ground for finals matches rather than player welfare.
5: It takes a lot to get suspended these days, doesn't it? In finals, it does. Hmm. Do you know what's weird? I feel like there's a rule in AFLW about having to have your hair tied back. There's a bobby pin rule and it, I think there was a ponytail rule as well. You can't or a plait. You it. can't plait it in it case it to. hits people. But I don't think they have that rule. I mean, the man mm. bun is obviously okay. Hmm. I'll dig in with some hair rules.
7: I must say, I've had my hair pulled before when I had long hair. I think pulling hair is uh, quite seriously a very serious offence because it's extremely painful. Mm -hmm. And I think what will have happened to Nat Nui would have been really painful. I'm not excusing his behaviour, by the way, but it's interesting in the aftermath of these decisions, again, there was a discussion that I saw playing out in the media about whether players could be called to give evidence, what evidence Mm -hmm. they would give, whether they would protect each other and so on. A conversation that's been going on for decades now, and it just reminded me that the system has some Serious flaws, the fact that we get these inconsistent decisions over and over again that. We can't rely on players or apparently can't rely on players giving evidence. It does need to be looked at. Mr. P, I think, needs to be reviewed at the end of the year.
1: Do you remember when David Polkinghorne told the truth? Yes. In the tribunal? And it was front page. Yes. Yeah, news. tells <laughs> truth because he actually said what had happened to him in a game.
5: I think if you look it up in the dictionary, Polkinghorne means tell <laughs> the truth. truth. It's Latin. It's <laughs> a Latin for it. Lucy, you watched the Collingwood documentary. I did. And
6: look, this documentary is one of my favourite kinds because it's the type where you give filmmakers unprecedented access and then the story just actually evolves. It's a film that primarily focuses on Nathan Buckley and players Brodie Grundy, Jared Blair and Adam Trelaw. And it's the 2018 football season. All of these people are facing particular challenges. Buckley's under pressure as a coach. We see Grundy trying to juggle tertiary study with football. Blair's coming to the end of his AFL career and Treloar is experiencing debilitating anxiety and depression and all four allow us to witness really private moments of vulnerability. For example, Adam trelaw lets the cameras come in to one of his sessions with a club psychologist. In doing this, what they actually really do is help to dispel the myth of the invincible footballer and even more than that, they really reposition traditional or stereotypical notions of what it is to be a man. I would argue that that's seen in all of the storylines but Particularly with Buckley, there's an acknowledgement that he wasn't always the most popular coach. And in describing this time, Blair says he wasn't considerate of everyone's being different. And Grundy also explains how he used to, you know, kind of just do that, do more. And that he felt it really confusing and unhelpful. At the start of the 2018 season, Nathan begins by focusing on connectedness. And he had this to say about their preseason camp, where players opened up about particular challenges that they had faced.
2: It's not as if we're sitting around singing Kumbaya and crying in each other's arms every second of every day. I mean, there, there is light and shade, but there's no doubt that our connection has grown over the last sort of three or four years, me, the playing group, and to the staff. It's taken some focus, it's taken an intention, and the openness of the environment was really positive feedback quite early. You know, it just felt like things clicked.
6: There's a moment in the doco where Nathan Buckley talks about his relationship with his own father and he really compares that relationship with the way that he is being a dad and that's really powerful. It's also powerful when he sits with the team following their grand final loss and is visibly emotional and says, I don't know how to lead you right now, boys, other than to say I'm proud of you and I love you. And I think you can chart how far we've come seeing a documentary like this. The fact that it's Collingwood, a club steeped in tradition, um, one that was by their own admission, an arrogant, chest beating kind of club, makes what we're seeing even more meaningful. And there's, I would argue, a reimagining of what success looks like. The big takeaway for me is when Buckley uses the word intention. I think there's a lesson here for organisations and
8: individuals
6: to really consider what the benefits of greater connectedness could be and at the heart of what Collingwood has done is an embracing of individuals' differences and of vulnerability and to be honest at the end of it I was just saying good old Collingwood mm,
5: Brene Brown would have been pretty proud. The, the notion of connectedness is one that we've revisited a couple of times. Sean Gorman wrote about it in the Vilification Rule 35 Reconciliation and Racial Harmony in Australia and football essay that was put out it was one of the very first things we ever went to as part of being the outer sanctum in looking and delving deeper into to other kinds of literature and writing and there's an amazing diagram about connectedness in football clubs and how it does actually result in success and we've talked about it so many times but we now have the images of that. I'm going to put those models on our social media and I can't quite believe that there's going to be that intersection of digital social media and this kind of research because it's not traditionally a standard Insta post but I think you'll find it really interesting.
7: Yeah, well, that documentary sounds fascinating. Lucy, I haven't had the chance to watch it yet, but I really am interested in this idea of reimagining success. And it's something that I've reflected on in the last few days as well. In the wake of um, everything that's been going on in the tennis world in the last week. So as some of our listeners will know, we've had the finals of the US Open over the last few days. Um, There's also, you know, tennis lingo filtering into footy with a lot of talk about whether Geelong and Brisbane will go out in straight sets, but that's by the by. But there were two huge talking points in the US Open, and that were, first of all, whether Serena Williams could achieve her 24th Grand Slam singles title. Um, She was beaten in the end by Bianca Andreescu, who won her first and the first for uh, anyone in Canada. And then the other talking point was Rafael Nadal, who, of course, went on to win his 19th singles title. I was really interested in the media discussion around both of those finals. There was so much focus on the record, whether Serena would get her 24th Grand Slam title, whether Nadal would, and whether he might then surpass Federer. And I think we do tend to measure the greatness of athletes in terms of records such as these. This is how we measure success. And it's something that I've been guilty of in the past too. I'm often really interested in how many premierships a person has won, how many games they've played. As this is, you know, we often think about this as somehow emblematic of the calibre of an athlete. And then on the plane home, I watched this really fascinating film, which made me reflect on this even further. And I really recommend it to everyone. It's a film from a couple of years ago called Borg McEnroe, and it follows the rivalry between Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe, and culminates in their very famous nineteen eighty Wimbledon uh, final, which many people regard as the best tennis-, tennis match of all time. And the focus in that film is actually really on Bjorn Borg. At that time, he was the world number one. He was the poster boy of tennis at the time and at a time that it was becoming much more professional sport. And then in the wake of that Wimbledon final, not long after, he quit the sport altogether, aged just 26. So the film, I think, is really a fascinating psychological study into the pressures of sport and the price that some athletes pay to compete at the highest level. Nevertheless, it got me reflecting a lot on how we define greatness in in sport. We saw this again on the weekend when Nadal won the US Open, so many of the headlines said Nadal wins his 19th Grand Slam, now just one away from Federer. And we move immediately to this future-oriented focus without celebrating just the achievement in and of itself. And Nadal had something to say about this um, in the aftermath in the press conference when he was quizzed about the fact that he is now just one major title behind Roger Federer. Let's have a listen to what he had to say.
9: I would love to be the one who have more, yes, but I will not I really believe that I will not be half or less happy if that happens or not happen Uh, what gives you the happiness is the personal satisfaction that you give it your best and in that way I am very very calm. I'm very pleased with myself.
7: So I think in an era era when athletes from many sports leave on their own terms, sometimes leave prematurely, in inverted commas, and I'm thinking here about Nathan Ablett, Tom Boyd, Tim Watson back in the day, and many others in footy, I really watched that film and came away thinking about the need to rethink the central emphasis that we place so often on how long someone has played a sport and how many championships they've won. So yeah, I recommend that film to you all highly. And in the next couple, of weeks as we see another team club, whoever it might be, win an AFL premiership. I hope we just celebrate that for what it is and don't immediately start thinking about whether they'll go back to back or back to back to back because I think we should celebrate achievements for what they are.
5: One place that we're seeing that kind of conversation roll out is that there's just been a statue unveiled of Taylor Harris in Federation Square and where the moment that it is marking is a moment that was huge for AFLW, enormous for women. But of course on Twitter there's people saying why does she deserve a statue? She hasn't even played X amount of games. Mm. It is a moment that is almost you almost you can put no value on it it is an absolutely invaluable moment for women and girls in this country. It was a moment that sparked a conversation. We were lucky enough to catch up with Taylor Harris just moments ago in Federation Square. I'm standing in Federation Square with Taylor Harris and her mum and there's about to be a very exciting unveiling. Taylor, tell us about what's happening.
4: Today I'm unveiling a bronze statue of myself kicking the ball, which is not my every Wednesday, so it's pretty exciting. When you get a call
5: from Taylor and she says
4: they're making a statue of me. Is that just
5: another day in the Harris household? Not this time it wasn't. It was just, oh, I, we just couldn't
3: believe it. Yeah, it's just amazing.
5: We know how important that kick has been to the AFLW community, but to the country. What does it feel like to know
4: that it's going to be emboldened like this for all time? I was saying to someone just before that I think this statue is important because people can come along and take a photo with it, selfie or whatever, and feel like they were a part of what happened and the moment in time so I think that's something that's really special and for a statue and I, the only real one in Melbourne that I can kind of think of is the Nikki Winmar one which people would do a similar thing and feel like they were a part of that moment and then they can I guess take a photo with a statue that's that's always they're probably not going to move and probably going to have a good smile every time but yeah I think that's something that's pretty unique about this particular statue that people can genuinely feel like they're a part of it. Did you have any input into how high your ponytail was um, how great your form was i think yeah well in terms of bronze statue making i'm not the biggest expert but one, two, three, yeah four, i one, two, three, four, i was involved obviously one, two, three, four, in measurements one, two, three, four, and things one, two, three, four, like that but yeah i left it to the experts one,
0: two, three, four, there's so
5: many statues four, of men one, two,
4: three, four, around this city especially men who've
5: created one, two, three, amazing sporting four, five, moments What does it feel like just being a woman of our generation to see this first AFLW moment and it being your daughter? Just incredible. And to think when Taylor's got children and grandchildren for them to be able to see it will just be the best. Congratulations to you both. What a day.
4: Thank you.
0: I'm sitting here with Scooter the dog and we're thinking about Taylor Harris today. This is a poem I wrote called Kicking Into The Moon. AFLW pride match. Carlton take on Western Bulldogs. Witten Oval crowded and awed. Rainbows eclipsing the afternoon sun. Brooke Walker goals from the centre square. Katie Brennan dances a jig after converting. Taylor Harris gets six points from 40 metres out. Just another day at the office. Michael Wilson snaps a photo. Taylor hung in mid-air muscle. Right foot. Bright orange shoe. The tip well past her headline. Left knee bent in aerial precision. Her right arm extended anticipating the goal. This is what footy is made for. Carlton Triumph. Three point victors in a joyous game. Taylor lights up the digital screens. After dark, the trolls descend in inarticulate masses, mock the picture and write the darkest scribes. Seven AFL take the kick down. After outrage for this cowardice and support for everything Taylor, the image is posted again, this time with an apology. We're sorry, removing the photo sent the wrong message. She tells a radio station the comments under the image made her uncomfortable. This athletic marvel, football icon igniting a flashpoint that will shine on overwhelmingly more love than hate. Posters, T-shirts, stickers, graffiti, all with a strut of her form, the kick that transcends the game, a statue for the ages.
5: Thank you very much to Alicia Sometimes for the very unique stylings and observations that she makes in poetry form. It is time for a different kind of poetry. Let's go Googling with Felicity.
9: Each final season, there is talk about home ground advantage, especially when teams like Geelong are required to forego their local option and play their home game at a larger venue to accommodate fans. Now, we've all seen the statistics that support that a home ground advantage exists, but why does it? Well, I went looking for the science here and found that most researchers generally identify the key factors as being crowd noise, familiarity with the shape and size of the ground, and lack of travel benefiting the home side. So let's look at crowd noise. At home matches, a team's fans are likely to greatly outnumber those of the away side, with researchers estimating that this crowd effect has a significant and sizable effect on the home team's likelihood of winning. Yet, Brianna Boyd, an architectural engineering student in the US, presented findings to the Acoustical Society of America meeting, where she matched up crowd noise with significant events and plays in US football games, and she found that there wasn't any correlation between decibel levels and the ability of the home team to score. The disadvantage, she found, was that crowd noise made it harder for the teams on the field to hear instructions. So, is it the shape and the size of the ground? We know that the playing area in Geelong is significantly narrower than the MCG, for example. Well, research from Professor Steve Clark from Swinburne University here in Melbourne suggests that, due to variance in ground size and shape such as this, home teams win 16.7% more games than they lose. But wouldn't that mean that on any ground of the same dimensions you would get the same advantage? Well, we know this isn't the case because the Geelong record in Geelong is significantly better than their past record at the odd Subiaco Oval of the same size. So is it travel? Well, travel to away games in Aussie rules could be onerous and generally is for clubs based in the West who rack up significantly more frequent flyer points than the other teams. But to be honest, driving up the freeway from Geelong is probably manageable for most elite athletes. So if the advantage is not from crowd noise and it's not ground size and it's not lack of travel, then what is it? In the study Testosterone, Territoriality and the Home Advantage, published in the journal Physiology and Behaviour, researchers from the University of Northumbria showed that all members of a soccer team had much higher levels of testosterone before a home game than before an away match. They went on to suggest that men playing on a home ground brings out this strong ancient instinct to protect their own territory. Perceived rivalry of the opposing team was also really important, as testosterone levels were higher before playing an extreme rival than a moderate rival. So it seems maybe the advantage can't be pinned to one factor. Maybe it's a combination of them all. Maybe it's crowd. Maybe it's hormones. Maybe it's the vibe.
5: Thank you to Felicity for her contribution this week. (laughs) She always deserves the silverware, just to speak like Clarko. In final business today, I just want to cover off, there is discussions of the AFLW CBAs is being discussed at the moment. You will have potentially seen a couple of media reports coming out. But some things that I just want to make you aware of that I'm finding what's being reported kind of curious, the CBA negotiations appear to tout a 21% increase in total player payments for the years going ahead. But that 21%, I don't think that refers to the individual players getting paid a 21% increase. I think that is actually an increase that covers the new players who are coming into the competition with the influx of four new teams coming in for season four. I think, in fact, the individual wages were signed off last year for the current players. So I don't think there is a discussion of an increase in their wages at the moment. I know there is a discussion of changes to how many weeks pre-season they'll do. I think there's there's just a couple of days is Being discussed. I think it's less than a week, even. The one constant in the CBA discussions, which I find really frustrating, is, is the broadcast deal and how the broadcast deal seems to be what defines how long the season can be, which to me is the tail wagging the dog. Are you mm-hmm. with me on this? I am. Yep, yep. And so I think I can't think of another situation where a broadcast deal actually defines the length of a competition or how a competition is fixtured or how it runs. And I think that there's a real concern from the players, and this is the mail that I've been receiving that until everyone plays each other once, there is no there is a real question mark over the integrity of the competition. That is what the players want. They mm-hmm. want to play each other once. I don't think it's a huge ask. And I think that the goalposts do keep getting moved and the negotiation time keeps getting reduced. And I think one thing that I want to make really clear is that when you're talking about a CBA for a group of players who are not full-time, it's not as easy to work out the CBA for the AFLW as opposed to the AFLM. In the AFLM, everyone that it affects is a full-time sports person. It is very challenging to come up with a CBA that's going to fit as potentially an 18-year-old who's just finished school that's living at home with their parents while also fitting a full-time mum or a business mm-hmm. owner or someone at the end of their career. I have a great concern that the players don't get enough contact time with their what is effectively their union, but um, they went for a vote on the CBA this week and they've postponed the vote and we will stand by to hear what happens next. But, you know, if we... As fans are desperate for this competition to have the integrity of playing everyone once and for us to see all of the permutations and combinations to then have a premiership that really matters to you and means something to you, then I can guarantee you that the majority of the players are feeling that way too and for them it's tenfold and we don't need to look further than seeing three players' dads writing to the newspaper Mm -hmm. saying these people are putting their bodies on the line. They want to play everyone once they want to play more games. So stand by for more news on that. It's a kind of a rolling story at this point, I would say. Kate, before we get out of here, any shout outs today?
7: We do. We've been uh, shouting out to listeners over the last few weeks, picking one listener each week. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Dan Faulkner, who has been a longtime listener to our podcast. Dan dropped off Twitter for a little while. He had an absence for quite a while and he's come back in the last few weeks and um, just engages with us all the time. He's always sending us links to articles and stories about things happening all around the world in women's sport and we just love it. We learn so much from Dan and from many of our other listeners who are always bringing content to us. That makes our lives a lot easier and, and very enriching. So thank you to Dan and we look forward to engaging with you more on, on the socials.
5: Thanks, everyone, for all your feedback and for contacting us. We do really appreciate you getting uh, giving us reviews on iTunes. It does really help us. Huge shout-out to all of the women who were named in the VFLW team of the the year, of which the Outer Sanctum's own Rosie Dillon, who we <laughs> supported this year, uh, was awarded a role. And we're so proud of you, Rosie, and all of the girls. Lucy, the big award on the night went to Lauren Pierce.
6: And also shout out to the women who are winning these awards in other states. So the WAFL had its first awards ever for Best and Fairest um, last night. And there was joint winners Hayley Miller and Danica. Piss Canary, and to Amanda Ferruja, oh, who I think rich. she won the Boston, Boston Medal, yep. fourth time. Amazing.
5: We have got to get out of here. Thank you so much for joining us today. There's only one thing left to say, my ladies. Go, Go footy!
2: Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec-Murray.
5: And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of.
2: Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or
1: on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.